passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Now this morning we're going to study Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. And I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to those verses as we prepare to study them together. While you're turning to Philippians 3, 12 through 16, I want you to know that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a real sports fan, like many of us. And you wonder, how do I know this? Because as you study his words through his letters, he consistently refers back to sports analogies and sports illustrations. Probably his favorite one is that of a runner, that of a runner straining and striving to win. And he refers directly to that analogy in the text we're going to be reading this morning. And he builds off of that multiple times and in multiple ways. So let's go ahead and read Philippians 3, 12 through 16. I ask you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read it together. And uh, you'll go ahead and see the sports analogies that Paul uses. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. That ends the reading of the word of God, and you can be seated. Uh, the heart of this, this short, short passage actually comes in verse 14. If you're following along in your outlines that are online, uh, you can see I wrote that down for you. Paul says this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And here is that sport analogy. He says that knowing God, that pursuing God, that chasing after God in this life will take energy. It's going to take focus. It's going to take determination. All the effort and focus of a runner who sees the tape in front of him and he is giving it his all, pouring out his guts to win the prize. That the Christian life is not lived like somebody who is laying back on an inner tube, floating down the lazy river, watching life just pass them by. No, the way we are to live our Christian life is like our name is Usain Bolt, and we see the finish line, and we give absolutely every last bit of effort, determination, and focus and sacrifice to win the prize. Growing in Christ, folks, will take hard work on our part. It does not just happen. Spiritual maturity in Christ does not take place by osmosis. It's like when you go to a library. You ever have that thing, you walk into a library, a big one that has all these books, and you just feel smart by being there? 
You may feel smart in the library, but you're not going to be smart in the library just by being there. You actually have to do the hard works of opening the books and reading the books to get smart from the books. You can't just be around them to get better. It's the same thing with Christian maturity. You can't just say that because I've been around the church, that necessarily means I'm going to have spiritual maturity in my life. There is hard work, effort, and sacrifice involved when it comes to being a mature and godly man or woman of Jesus Christ. And this is our theme this morning. It's about spiritual maturity. That spiritual maturity does not just automatically happen. Spiritual maturity will take hard work, it'll take effort, it'll take sacrifice, it'll take living like an athlete striving for the finish line. And this is a very important thing for Paul to point out, especially at this point in the letter. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Paul gave us his testimony. He told us that it he started out life with a resume, a resume that he had written and had all these things that he had done on it and how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a persecutor of the church. He had this big resume he planned to give to God when he stood before him for judgment, expecting that God would say, hey, you're, you're great, come on in, until he realized that God demanded absolute perfection. And he realized his resume was worthless. Actually, he considered his resume rubbish. And if you remember last week, rubbish is actually far worse than just garbage. And so he burned the old resume. He has a new resume, which has just one thing on it, the name of Jesus. And he's saved by Jesus and by faith alone. He's saved by grace alone. He's saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And last week we talked about that. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Jesus did it all for us. We just place our faith and trust completely and fully in him. But here is where a misunderstanding can start. All of a sudden, people start to think, well, I like the Christian life. Because that would mean there's absolutely no work in the Christian life. There's no effort in the Christian life. We're saved by faith, so I trust in Jesus. And lay on that inner tube and just float down the lazy river until I get to heaven. So it's easy to think, after hearing what Paul just said about his testimony, that since we're saved by faith, that the Christian life will involve no work, no sacrifice, no effort whatsoever. But these verses, Paul turns around and says, that's absolutely not true. Now, is it true we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone? Absolutely, that is true. But spiritual maturity in Christ... That's different. That doesn't just happen. Spiritual maturity on our part will take work. It'll take effort. It'll take focus and sacrifice like a runner going after the finish. So these verses at first will tell us the relationship between being saved by faith 
and yet having to do work actually to mature in Christ. But there's something else these verses address that is very important. And they address an issue that, that has cropped up a number of times in church history. This is something called perfectionism. It is a silly belief that has cropped up in church history where some people believe that you can become so spiritually mature in this life that you actually become perfect and sinless in this life. And if you've achieved spiritual perfection, they say, well, then you don't have to try and become more like Jesus because they believe that in this life you have become perfect like Jesus. And some of you are saying, well, that's nice. I've never heard of that. Others of you are saying, well, actually, I've heard about it, but I don't know much about the erroneous doctrine of perfectionism. So let me give you a little brief history on it. If you come out of the Methodist tradition, if you've come out of the Wesleyan tradition, or even the Nazarene tradition, you've probably heard them talk about the doctrine of perfectionism. Sometimes they call it total sanctification. Sometimes they call it complete sanctification. In essence, it's the belief that in before death, in this life, you can become spiritually perfect, spiritually mature, and so spiritual maturity is no longer necessary because you finally arrived. And they've taught that when that happens, you no longer have to do the hard work of pursuing Christ. Interestingly, uh, the perfectionists will say that does not come about because you've actually totally uh, mortified yourself and done the hard work of trying to flee from sin and pursue Jesus. They say this actually comes about as what they call a secondary work of grace. Like the first work of grace is when you become a Christian and are born again. They will claim that sometimes later in life there was a secondary work of grace where either momentarily or temporarily, or permanently, you become absolutely free of sin and completely mature. Historically, uh, this was originally taught by a man named Pelagius in the early church. And if you know anything about early church history, Pelagius is the bad guy. That's pretty much it. That's all you need to know. He's like the Joker on the Marvel comic book superheroes. Not the good guy. Uh, in more recent church history, this was taught by Wesley. But I have to tell you, it's not taught in the Bible anywhere. And uh, historically, uh, people, when Wesley taught this, people actually strongly disagreed with him. And they tried to point out to him issues of sin in his life or in the lives of other people who claim they have experienced this secondary level of sanctification. And the only way he was able to maintain teaching this was he made this interesting little erroneous division. He said there's a difference between a sin and a mistake. I can make a mistake, but it wasn't actually a sin. Uh, it's, to me, that's just really playing with ling linguistics. Not true at all. But you have to understand that these verses are so cool because in these verses, Paul literally obliterates the doctrine of perfectionism, that we will be perfect in this life. Three times in this section, Paul trumpets very loud and clear, I am not perfect. I've got a long way to go in my spiritual maturity in Jesus. 
And if Paul says that, I feel a lot better about feeling that way as well. And I'm sure you do. But think of it this way. Here's how I think he obliterates it. At this point, when Paul writes this letter, he's been a Christian for 30 years. Remember, Paul is the guy who has literally seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul, has, at this point, has written a large portion of what is our New Testament. Paul has already been to heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. Paul says, I don't know. He's like been there. But then he says, by the way, even after all that, I'm not perfect. I've got a long way to go on my spiritual maturity. And all I have to say to the perfectionists is if Paul has a long way to go in spiritual maturity, I don't think Wesley is already there. I mean, you're not going to compare yourself to Paul and say you're advancing behind, beyond him. This raises another question I think is very good before we dive in, in deeper into the text. Why even work on spiritual maturity? Because we know that spiritual maturity is going to be hard work. It's going to be sacrifice. It's going to be discipline. Paul is using this athletic analogy. Why do that? Aren't we saved just by faith? Why not just simply place your faith in Christ and you know that when you die and go to heaven, you'll finally be perfect like Christ. So why do all the hard work, sacrifice, and self-discipline of trying to pursue knowing Jesus? Actually pursue learning the Bible and trying to repent of sin in this life. If it'll all be taken care of when I get to heaven. That may sound like an important question, but actually if you think about it for a little bit, it's actually a very goofy question. Because when Christians become Christians, you know what happens is God places the Holy Spirit in our life, and the Bible describes ourselves as literally being born again. We are literally made into a new creation on the inside, a new person on the inside. And anything that is newborn has an insatiable appetite to grow, doesn't it? That's exactly what happens. In fact, evidence that you've been born again in Christ is an insatiable appetite and hunger in your heart to grow and become more like Christ. I have a friend, and my friends, they have a, a newborn child. And this child does not sit there and wonder, well, should I grow or shouldn't I grow? I don't know if I want to become any bigger than I actually am. That's ludicrous. By virtue of being alive, this child has a complete insatiable appetite to grow. It has hunger. It gets the mother up in the middle of the night because I need more food because I want to grow more right now. Folks, the only things that don't want to grow are dead things. Living things always want to grow. By virtue of being alive in Christ, you will have an insatiable hunger and desire to grow and become more like Jesus Christ. And if you have no desire to become more like Christ in this life, that's evidence of spiritual death, not spiritual life. Now, I have given you a long introduction uh, to what is even this text, but I think it's an important introduction. 
as we dive into the text, we're going to see that Paul is going to give us seven principles of spiritual maturity. And so they're a bit longer as we give the front ones, and we'll be quicker as we get to the back ones. So let's go look at these seven principles of spiritual maturity he gives us. Number one, spiritual maturity begins when I realize I need to mature. And Paul begins by saying this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I told you he's going to annihilate the doctrine of perfectionism. And here he is. This is the first of three times when he says in these verses, by the way, guys, I'm not really spiritually mature yet. I'm still trying to work on my progress in Christ. So what Paul is saying is his position in Christ has been fixed by faith, but his condition in Christ, the nature of that relationship, always has room to improve and grow. Trying to analogize this, to explain this to you, what came to mind is, is marriage. When you get married to your spouse, your position is fixed. Your husband and wife, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and health. It's a, it's a permanent position. But while the position of your marriage is fixed, the condition of your marriage for the next 50 years may have good times and it may have difficult times, right? It goes up and it goes down. And you need to put a lot of consistent work into your relationship to improve the condition of your relationship. And if you don't put that work in, the condition of your relationship will not be strong. Incidentally, uh, this also sort of annihilates the doctrine of perfectionism, but we annihilate it by way of analogy, uh, comparing marriage to spiritual growth. Is there ever a time in our marriage where we go, you know, my marriage has reached perfection at this point. I have no need to put effort and work into it. My relationship with my uh, wife is so good, I have no need to talk to her anymore. Absolutely not. You need to continually be working on the condition of your marriage. Is there ever a time when someone says, I have reached perfection in this life? I no longer need to turn away from sin. I no longer need to pursue knowing Jesus because I finally attained perfection. I finally arrived. Makes absolutely no sense. So here is Paul, 30 years into his faith, after having seen the risen Christ, after having been to heaven, written a large portion of our New Testament saying, I have not obtained it. I'm not perfect. I still need to work on my, faith, my relationship with Jesus. Now here's my challenge at this moment. Why I don't think there's anybody in this room who is a conscious perfectionist coming out of the Wesleyan tradition in that sense I think there may be a number of us who are subconscious perfectionists. And by that I mean we subconsciously say, well, I don't really need to put too much effort into my Bible reading. I don't really need to go out of my way to try and make sure I'm maturing. I just sort of let my Christian life happen. 
like I'm floating down the lazy river. And Paul says that is exactly what you do not want to do. We pursue maturity in Christ like a runner going after the finish line. It does not just happen unless we have a conscious plan and effort to pursue it and make it take place. Number two, Paul says this, spiritual maturity will take effort and hard work. And we find that in this phrase. And I press on, he says, to make it, that is the spiritual maturity, my own. And the key thing to work on, remember here, is the word or the phrase press on. In the Greek, it is very vivid. It means to run after something. It means to chase something, to pursue something. It was used to describe a dog chasing a rabbit in the field. You can picture the intensity of that dog. Or a sprinter going after the finish line. It is energetic. It is aggressive. Paul says, that is how I try and pursue knowing Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not out there jogging. You know what jogging is like, don't you? By the way, I'll admit I'm trying to do jogging this summer, get back in shape. But uh, jogging and running is a big difference for me. Jogging for me is like baby steps with a glorified shuffle. You know, on the, the path where you run, nobody could hear me coming because my steps are so short and so gentle because I'm trying to make it through. But a runner sounds like a horse coming down the path because they're pounding the pavement with energy and work trying to get someplace. And Paul says, we do not pursue knowing Jesus like we're casual joggers who would never break a sweat. We pursue knowing Jesus like we're pounding the pavement. So, let me give you some applications of this. When we read our Bible, we need to have a plan. We need to actually read our Bible, not just something to say, well, I just I read it for a minute and a half. I got that checkbox done. Now I can say I did it and move on and forget it. We actually have to put effort and energy into it and say, I'm reading this because I actually want to learn this because I actually want to keep it in my heart. I'm highlighting that verse because I want to remember that verse. In fact, I'm going to write it down in a card, and I'm going to commit it to memory because I'm going after this stuff. This is what's important. That's the picture that Paul has. Now I'm going to give you an illustration that I'm probably going to get in trouble for, but hopefully I say it in such an appropriate way that I don't get in too much trouble. One of the things that was popular when I was growing up was the daily bread. And my mom always told me, try to read the daily bread. And it was a, a one verse on the top and a nicely written, written paragraph beneath it, which is not a, it's not a bad thing. But face it, it's a bite-sized thing. It's like having one cracker with cheese whiz. You cannot call that breakfast and expect to be develop a strong and healthy body with one Ritz cracker and cheese whiz. You, you need to eat more. And what Paul would say in this situation is, you know, 
Maybe you need to, like, take a book of the Bible. Take, like, Ephesians. Or take, like, Philippians. And read it. You don't have to read the whole thing in one sitting, but maybe read two chapters a day. But read the same book 12 times. And you know what you see in that book? Is things on the... And the time you're reading it, number 8, 9, or 10, are things you never saw the first time you read it. As the Holy Spirit begins to apply it into your life, and it becomes part of the very fabric of your being, and God uses it to change your life. You do that because you're going after it by putting hard work and effort into it. Look how Paul describes the Christian, the Christian life in other verses. And I'll give you one out of Hebrews, which is not from Paul, but here you go. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Or in Hebrews, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Since Paul likes athletic analogies, I'm going to give you one athletic analogy of my own. If you're going to get in good physical shape, it's going to require that we have a plan. You would have to know what you're going to do when you go to the gym. You're going to have a routine. You are going to have a schedule to go to the gym. You know what you do when you get there. And when you get there, you actually have to push yourself hard. You have to sweat. You have to strain. And when you go to the YMCA to do that, don't you like to go to workout classes? And you know why we go to workout classes? Because in that class, it'll push us harder and farther than we would push ourselves. Isn't that why we go? But isn't that a good parallel for spiritual maturity? If we're going to be mature, we have to have a plan. We have to say, here's what I'm going to read. Here's how I'm going to read. This is what days I'm going to read. This is what time I'm going to read. I have to have a plan. And when I read, I, I can't just give it minimal effort. I have to give it maximal effort. I have to give it focus. I have to give it concentration. Maybe I, some of these verses I read, I have to commit to my heart and I have to memorize. And then you say, well, I also come to church because in church, it's like going to a YMCA class. Because when we're under the teaching of God's Word, either in this room or Crosswinds University classes, what happens is we go harder, we go farther than any of us would by just reading the Bible on our own. That's why we need one another. So I say this to say uh, spiritual maturity is not just going with the flow. It takes hard work. 
Number three, spiritual maturity. Uh, we pursue spiritual maturity when our heart is filled with gratitude. Paul says this, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says the reason that he pursues spiritual maturity so hard in this life is because Jesus pursued him so hard. And out of gratitude, that's the natural response. Remember what we learned earlier in Philippians. <laughs> Jesus is the one who created everything. He was in heaven. Yet because of love for us, he humbled himself to take on flesh permanently and irrevocably. Out of love for us, he was crucified to save us from our sin. And then, not only that, not only did he save us, but then he pursued us. And think about Paul's life on the Damascus Road when Paul was far from God. In fact, Paul was persecuting Christians and arresting Christians. Who knocked him on his backside? Jesus pursued him. Jesus took him from a life that was headed to hell to a life that was headed to heaven, and he deserved none of it. And out of gratitude for what Christ has done, he says, Christ has pursued me so hard. Out of gratitude, I have to pursue Christ really hard. I can't do anything else. But isn't the same thing happened in your life? Can't you look back on a time where was your Damascus Road moment? Where you were headed in the wrong direction, but Jesus Christ got a hold of you in your life. He pulled the scales off your eyes. He repented of your sin, and you trusted in Jesus, and he saved you. And out of gratitude for him pursuing you, how can we not in response pursue him? Another thought, just so we know here. Many times think uh, that people think that spiritual maturity is a boring life. That trying to know Christ and read your Bible and trying to live for Christ. That, would that be boring? I would tell you that's wrong. Spiritual maturity is the most satisfying life that you can live. I have yet to meet a person who regrets becoming a more godly father. I have yet to meet a person who regrets becoming a more godly mother. I have yet to meet a, a young adult who regrets becoming a more godly teenager in their school. At times, is it hard and difficult? Oh, of course, to follow Christ. But they never regret following Christ. It is absolutely the best thing that they could have done. So the point is we pursue Christ out of gratitude for Christ pursuing us. The next principle, number four. Spiritual maturity requires learning to focus on one thing. This is very practical. Brothers, he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, which, by the way, is now the second time he said he's not spiritually perfect. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And here is what Paul is going to focus on. It's the one thing phrase. The secret of making progress in anything is learning to not be distracted by everything. The secret of making progress in anything is learning to not be distracted by 
everything. Let me return to um, the idea of athletics. Oops, did I skip a section? Oopie. Nope, I didn't. We're good. Okay. We live in a very distraction-orientated world. We have cell phones. Oh, we have computers, which we're getting text messages. We're getting Snapchats. We're getting Instagram. We're getting notifications all constantly, all distracting us. And I need you to know that if you're going to make progress at anything in this world, you need to learn to focus. You need to learn to concentrate. You need to learn to shut out all the distractions in life so you can focus on what you know is really important in this life. Growing up when I was uh, young, I remember having to learn this because I had a real hard time getting my homework done. You'd start out for five minutes with homework and then your mind would be someplace else. So what I learned to do is take a, a clock. I, the clock would go for 20 minutes and then five minutes. 20 minutes of study time followed by five minutes of playtime until I could learn to go farther and farther and farther in those kind of things. In fact, uh, I want to challenge you. In this world, it's filled with people who are mediocre at everything. What's in short supply who are people who are great at something. Be great at something. In particular, be great at spiritual maturity. And the reason so many people have not developed great spiritual maturity is they have not learned to focus. They have not learned to shut out distractions. Let me think of it to this way. When it comes to Bible reading, you need to do it at a time when you're undistracted, a time when you're fresh, a time when you're able to give it your best. That may mean getting up early. That may mean getting alone. Do that where you give it your absolute best. When it comes time to memorize Scripture, I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't work well to memorize Scripture with the television on. I can attest to that. It's a distracting thing. When it comes to time to read a good, solid Christian book that's going to help grow your faith, don't try to do it with music in your headphones. Really, you will not get out of it what you should be getting out of it. Now, this is personal to me, and I'll tell you why. Some of you know this, some of you don't, but I am a very easily distracted person. So 20 years ago, when I would be in the office, I needed to start wearing earplugs. And for over 20 years, I wear earplugs in the office because I can hear other conversations around me, and I'm easily distracted off of what I need to do. I mean, we're talking, I'm totally retentive on this. Even when I'm here on a Saturday and nobody's in the building and I'm studying for a sermon, I have earplugs on because the hum of the fluorescent lights is enough to distract me. Some of you come into my office and like, why are the lights off? Is he sleeping? No, because I want to cut out all visual distractions. Because the secret to making progress in anything is not being distracted by everything. It's by learning to focus and concentrate with all your effort. And Jesus, knowing him, following him, and seeing what his word says to us today is something that completely deserves that kind of focus and attention.
he also says this, I need to forget the achievements and failures of my past. Think of a runner, a runner who's running for the finish line. There's no reason for that runner to look backwards, is there? It doesn't matter what's behind him. He can't change those things. All that matters is what's in front of him. Now, I said there's two things we have to forget. First was the achievements, and second was the failures. Let me talk a little bit about the achievements. What does it mean to forget that? Could you imagine a race and the runner coming to the block and telling the other athletes about how good he's been in the past, about how well he's done in other races? I think the other athletes would look at him and say, I don't really care how well you did before. What matters is how well you do right now. That's all that matters. In all your discussion of past victories, all that does is distract you away from the effort you need to put in life right here and right now. Now you say, how does this apply into the church world? Here's an illustration. Before um, I came to Crosswinds years ago, I had the privilege of serving a small church and it had a lot of older people. And by that, I want you to know I love those people. They were just wonderful folks, great godly folks. But there was everything we talked about, they would always start referring to what they called the good old days. Well, that will be nothing like it was in the good old days. I learned in the good old days, the potlucks always tasted better. The music was always better. And unfortunately, when it came to me, the sermons were always better too in the good old days. And I'm very sympathetic. You know, most of those folks were older and they've passed the prime of their life and it is appropriate they remember the, the prime of their life and the, and the good old days. But as we're talking about how we're going to try and do things in the present, folks, the good old days doesn't help at all. The good old days doesn't help when we have a family who is going through a difficulty and there's a divorce going on. Don't tell me about the good old days then. What matters is here. What matters is now. Don't tell me about the good old days when we're trying to share the gospel with somebody who desperately needs to hear it. All the good old days talk at that point is, is distraction. The good old days can't help you in the presence. Now, the other thing I think we need to forget is the, not just the successes of the past, but the failures of the past. Because isn't it true that what Satan loves to do to each one of us is to take the failures of the past in our life and throw it up into our presence and say, you will never amount to anything. You could never do anything of worthwhile for Jesus Christ. You're done. Some people will say, well, because I was divorced in my past, <laughs> that means I, I can't do this for Christ. Or because I was so sinful in my past, I'll never amount to anything in the church. I'm just happy to be in the church. That's a ploy of Satan trying to take your past and ruin your future. And if you're somebody who says, I've had a really rough past before Jesus, so he could never use me now, I would simply refer you to Paul. Paul was the one who was in the process of helping murder Christians, arrest Christians. Yet look what God did with him. And if Paul can use, God can use Paul's life, he can use your life. 
Let me quickly cover this. I need to put all of my effort into being more like Jesus also in the future. The word strain there means to stretch a muscle to the point almost where it snaps. What what Paul is saying is when it comes to our spiritual maturity and in the future, give it all of your effort. Give it your absolute best. Push yourself. Work yourself. Let me quickly cover some of the other ones. Spiritual maturity in this life comes with a great reward, by the way, in the next life. Paul says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Spiritual maturity, folks, comes with a prize. It comes with a reward. Spiritual maturity in this life will richly be rewarded in the next life. Revelation 22, 12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward, Jesus says, is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. Or 2 John verse 8. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who pursue spiritual maturity. Number six, there is no other path to spiritual maturity besides the one Paul gave, which in other words involves hard work, involves sacrifice, in going after knowing our Bible and knowing Jesus. Philippians 3.15, let those of us who are mature, he says, think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Spiritually mature people realize that spiritual maturity only comes by putting effort, work, and sacrifice into knowing Jesus, knowing God's word, and pursuing knowing Christ. It's the immature people that will try and give you shortcuts, like the Judaizers who said if you were just circumcised, you'd be spiritually mature. The Gnostics, who said if you just had some special inside knowledge, you'd be spiritually mature. And Paul says, no, it's, it's, we're saved by faith, but we have to do the hard work of pursuing Christ. Lastly, he says this, if we become complacent, by the way, we can lose spiritual maturity. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Paul is saying that it will also take effort to not just gain spiritual maturity, but it takes effort and work to hold spiritual maturity. The analogy that came to mind as I was studying this was that of a professional baseball player. Maybe you know pitchers. Pitchers, they work hard and they develop their skills to the point that they can throw a ball at almost 100 miles an hour with great accuracy. That's a very mature physical talent. But what happens if that pitcher walks away from baseball for two years straight and doesn't touch a ball? What will happen to their ability to throw it? Well, they'll still be better than an average pitcher, but they'll no longer be a great pitcher. The same thing holds true to us in our faith. We don't just have to pursue knowing Christ as if we obtained it at one point and then we give up on it, but we constantly have to maintain knowing Christ. 
We never get to the point in our life where we said, we've read the Bible enough, I don't have to read it anymore. We've prayed enough, we don't have to pray anymore. We've been to church enough, we don't have to go to church anymore. Remember, we have to pursue knowing Jesus with all of our heart, with all of our soul, like a runner heading for the finish line. Now, I gave you in the conclusion on your outline uh, the many of the points that I've given, and I'll just read them quickly here. First, spiritual maturity doesn't just happen. We learned that. We need to work hard to pursue it like an athlete running to win. Next, we learned that we have to be careful of theological and practical perfectionism. As soon as we think we do not need to be become more like Christ, we will start becoming less like Christ. Next point was progress in anything will require not being distracted by everything. To grow in Christ, we need to learn to silence distractions in our life and let go of our past and focus on our future. D was this. We pursue spiritual maturity when our heart is filled with gratitude. Gratitude to God for what he's done. Then we learn that pursuing spiritual maturity in this life comes with great reward. And lastly, when we gain spiritual maturity, we must not become complacent because then we can lose spiritual maturity as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But I pray that we as Christians would not be uh, pursuing spiritual maturity like casual joggers who don't want to break a sweat. We wouldn't be pursuing spiritual maturity like people floating down the lazy river, just letting life pass us by. But I asked that you would help us to see that spiritual maturity and knowing you and reading your word and seeking you will take work. It'll take effort. It'll take sweat and grit. I pray that you would help us to pursue Christ with all of our heart. Because we know that when we do that, and you continue to mature us in those things, that we will never regret any of it. There is nothing more satisfying in this life than becoming more like Jesus. And that is what we want to stretch and pursue. I ask that you would help us not just to jog, but to run after it, and to run to win. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.